You're listening to the Unsung Podcast, where we talk about classic albums and decide if they deserve that distinction. And we also talk about some unsung classics in the hopes of bringing them to a new audience. And at the end of it all, we let you decide if we are right or wrong. This is the Unsung Podcast. Hi and welcome to episode 10 of the Unsung Podcast. As ever, before we crack on with this week's episode, we need to clear up what happened last week. Well, fans of Low would be glad to know that the public have decided that trust by Low is the definitive statement by the band. The public have voted that trust by Low goes into our discography of Unsung Classics. So thank you to everyone who voted. We had some really inspired and lively discussion particularly on Twitter around this record you know fans of Low really seem to love the band and have some really strong opinions on on their songs as well so it was really great to see people get involved if we could get more of that that would be that would be awesome frankly so let's get on with it we're talking about a record this week which is perhaps not an unsung classic but definitely merits discussion it is of course The Downward Spiral by Nine Inch Nails I am your host Mark Fraser and I am joined by two guys. Uh, to my right is Glasgow's foremost Johnny Cash impersonator, Chris Cusack. <laughs> so weak. Uh, <laughs> you're not even trying anymore. <laughs> to my left is Glasgow's second most Johnny Cash impersonator. Oh, you're not going to talk about the colour yeah. of my shirt. You thought you about think that you can, for ages. think you can lower the, lower the bar. <laughs> <laughs> On that episode we were talking about the downward spiral by Nine Inch Nails, which... <laughs> Makes it sound like that. <laughs> pretty psyched. I'm pretty psyched. Yeah. Are you psyched, Weezer? Uh, Weezer? Weezer. Are you psyched, Weezer? <laughs> What's with I this homie? I got rid of that name. <laughs> God damn, I just got Weezer on the brain. Aye, uh, aye. I mean, yeah, in a, it's a sort of, uh, oh, I'm excited because I'm a teenager album. So, like, I feel like we're all going back to being excited as teenagers with this record. This came out in the same year as In Utero by Nirvana. As In Utero? Yeah. <laughs> it's so general the way you said that. And also as The Holy Bible in, by the In Utero. In Utero. <laughs> which is as, and what, as what? a real banner year. And uh, The Holy Bible by the Manics was a real banner year for the press and fucking music. <laughs> yeah, Jeeves. Ah, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Highs and lows. In yeah. Utero, high. Manics right, for low. John Major. John Major. <laughs> just leave. <laughs> just like, uh, done. Depressing. Podcast done. John Major. <laughs> depressing music, John Minor. <laughs> hey. Well done. Well done. <laughs> I'll give you that one. Thanks very much. Um, anyway, we were talking about just obviously prior to pressing record. It's like, do you, do you still like Nine Inch Nails? It's like, 
I still like the fact that I like Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. It's like, do I, st- I, st- I still like Charlie Brown? Do I, do I, I don't. Aye. It's unlikely I'm going to. Great. I mean, it, it's of its era. I, I suppose the annoying thing for me is that I missed it when, you know, I was eight when this album came out. So I wasn't really going to get full buzz on it. should have been there. It. it was awesome. There was so much quality self harm taking place <laughs> with this one. Like. <laughs> I just missed it by four or five years. But yeah, so like, I first heard Nine Inch Nails when I was. Once again, reading Kerrang, and oh, who's this? The Fragile. What's this record? Did you cover oh, this with your high school band? <laughs> we didn't go <laughs> so far as, as Nine Inch Nails. No Starfuckers, no, no, uh, no. Um, so I kind of had to go back, and there was this guy that arrived in my uh, high school. He was a couple years older than me, and he taught a lot of us like the way, the goth way. <laughs> <laughs> it was hilarious. <laughs> uh, he was the dark side. He was a he was the first person I'd ever met who had a he 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 had poppers. I think they were the first poppers in all this. As in the as in you know. I don't think they were the first poppers the in all this. I just think you don't go to those clubs. Well, yeah, there's no clubs like that in all this. Uh, we used to go to parties at his and drink take poppers. I take poppers, drink Lambrini, uh, smoke weed, and uh, like he would put on it. He would put on Nine Inch Nails, so it did become like a like a smoky, dark, uh, <laughs> you know, party album. It's like a party. It was like a it was like a golf party, party album. Party, man. <laughs> it's like a watch party. Pop and Nine Inch Nails and up in all Ness. Anybody? Kids listening in all Ness. What's wrong with this? I've got my car. Who's up for it? <laughs> so for me, it's not a classy album. Is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but that's fine. I was living my Trent Reznor life. <laughs> I think um, like I think one of one of the highlights of this album was the fact that Trent had the Nine Inch Nails logo designed in such a way that you could easily slash it into your arm with a broken bio. <laughs> I did that deliberately. It was like, hey, I need to make a single stroke so that all these little folk going to school with long sleeve t shirts can do this. Yeah. That was everywhere. It was absolutely everywhere. Is that a thing that happened? Oh man. Totally. Actually. Nine Inch Nails and Marlon Manson. Yeah. Most self slashed logos ever. Surely. Absolutely. Yeah. Thousands of forearms all over the country <laughs> still cutting about with a vague kind of like ghostly image of uh, that weird rectangular NI backwards end thing. I was just going to say, I had a really badly burned backward R on my corn <laughs> on my elbow. That's fine. <laughs> on your elbow? <laughs> my elbow? No yeah. wonder it was badly burned then. That's a weird place my to try arm. and do it. Uh, no, corn was my miserable band when I was a teenager, but Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, a pretty miserable band. Yeah. The, Close second. Yeah. You see, Jonathan Davis is playing it down this year. I know on his Solo own. Set. I I don't even want to know. <clears throat> you just be scatting. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know what? Half an hour risk it hard, Chris. I did play Freak on a Leash uh, at Fantastic Man on Saturday. Oh, I'm not surprised. And I was uh, in the toilet having a pee while it was playing, and the guy next to me was like, <laughs> "It was amazing. It was like a very touching moment." Oh, well. <laughs> It, luckily, <laughs> luckily, I don't think Nine Inch Nails can get can be blamed for corn too much. I mean, no. there are bands that at some point in the future will bring up that probably can, but not. No, so but there's a couple things. of tracks on this record that are absolute like sort of metal club classics. Oh no yeah. doubt, no uh-huh. doubt, and they they bear a lot of the the brunt for. Well, I know some people really like Marilyn Manson. Like Marilyn Manson, definitely was a result of this. And there was Absolutely. also there was a whole host of imitators at the time. There were bands. Like, so I, I did get into this just as it happened, and uh, it was like Stabbing Westward and Stabbing Westward. G- I remember them. Gravity Kills. Uh, there was Richard 
Is it Richard Patrick or was it Robert Patrick? Ah, one of the uh, Patrick brothers. Richard, the one that wasn't in X-Files, yeah. yeah. The, one that was, filter. the one that was well, in Nine Inch Nails, Nails yeah, yeah. yeah. He fell out with Trent Reznor, started Filter. And I really loved brother? Filter's first band. Yeah, yeah. His Fucking hell, man. The Agent Doggett. Didn't know that. Doggett. Jesus. Do you mean the Terminator, the, the T-1000? Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Brother of the guy from Nine Inch Nails. There you go. That's but um, yeah, he started Filter. And the first Filter album was actually pretty good. It was and hard then they to got get. pretty, like, sort of. Yeah, they got really mainstream. They had that song yeah. about waking on an aeroplane. It was like a jangly acoustic thing. The, the Take a Picture one. Take a Picture. You wanna take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like. Pretty rancid. Bad song. Yeah, yeah. I love. I got into Nine Inch Nails because of Marlon Manson. Um, I, I, I was really into Marlon Manson. I still, I still would listen to the records that he made in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, but as, when I listen to this record now, all I can hear is Antichrist Superstar. Yeah, I know they he he ripped it off wholesale. He just took it. Mm-hmm. He just basically just took it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he took it, and then he did one song which had like that famous Marlon drum beat, which wasn't an Inch song, and that became a signature sound. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful people. Yeah. 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 Well, you're just not going to name that in case it gave it extra promotion. Everybody knows. <laughs> every single big song he's had's got the same fucking drum beat. Disposable Teens, Rock is Dead. Yeah. It's all the same but songs. Actually, it's funny you say that. Back at these parties in this Kinsler suit with Lambrini and Poppers. The Angel with the Scabbed Wings by Marilyn Manson. It's a good song. Great song. But I mean, it just wholesale directly ripped off this album, basically. Yeah. You know, that's just a Nine Inch Nails track. I think like the the caliber of people that Reznor was working with as well, like, it's it's pretty stunning seeing you go back. I mean, obviously he worked with a lot of people, including Marilyn Manson and Twiggy Ramirez and people like that at the time. Like he knew these people from touring and all kinds of stuff. But the people that he worked with on this album, the remix album, the stuff around mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. Um, like the guy from Coil, um, Aphex Twin mm-hmm. did one of the remixes. I don't know if Aphex Twin was really that into it though. Well, you can never tell with him, though. I don't think they work together. I, I don't know, man. I, well, maybe, but I think Trent Reznor's pretty, held in pretty high esteem amongst producers. I mean, I know yeah, a, a yeah, lot of true. electronic producers, a lot of them were turned on to a lot of their, the stuff they do, especially the more edgy stuff yeah. by some of the things he did. And the, the remix albums could be pretty brave. I mean, some okay, some it's it's pretty... Uh, it's a bit of an eye-roller, you know, it can be quite cheesy and stuff. And he had stuff like Perfect Drug... Mm-hmm. The the one from the Lost Highway soundtrack yeah. mm-hmm. that kind of came out after this, but before the Fragile, um, it could be a wee bit silly and a wee bit over the top. And it was a guy dabbling in stuff that he obviously wasn't an authority, and he was looking for a wee bit of, you know, credibility by picking ideas from other people. But he did a lot of that. Like, I, th- I think as corny as Nine Inch Nails could sometimes be, they do also have a lot of credit. Or he does have a lot of credibility. It is. Probably clarify that, yeah, as well. Like, Nine Inch Nails is ostensibly just Trent Reznor mm-hmm. until I think 2016, when it was the first time that another person was officially recognised as a. Yeah. Another, that guy, Atticus Ross, became the second member of He's Nine Inch Nails. He's been a touring member of the band for like. Yeah, I mean, over a lot a decade, of people. Yeah, there was loads of. Like, it's really interesting yeah. some of the, the, the bands <clears throat> these people have played with. Like, the drummer from James, James Addiction was a, yeah. a big contributor to Nine Inch Nails on tour. Robert guy, Fripp has played with them, Guy for Icarus Line. Like, so many people like have played with Nine Inch well, Nails. It's, Terrifying. Yeah, the, the guitarist in uh, the Downward Spiral is the guy from King Crimson, mm-hmm. and he absolutely rips it. Like, hey, he nails it. Uh, it's yeah. superb. Um, by the guy Atticus Ross, interesting trivia, went to school with none other than David Cameron, Nigel Farage, 
Uh, who else is in that? Ed Miliband, Boris, Boris Johnson. Yeah, it's kind of. What, what school was that, Chris? Goth crew. Was that not Eaton? I think it was Eaton. Wasn't I it? think it was Eaton. A real Eaton mess. <laughs> hey oh. <laughs> <laughs> is he in that photo? Do you think? I don't know. Oh, actually, that famous photo. Yeah. Yeah. I, I nah, doubt he was, it. I don't get that impression. Was doing the fucking cat house. <laughs> <laughs> Eating cat house. Aye. I wonder what that's like. It's interesting like that across the Jaguar mansion or Allness. So I said Allapool there. I just gave Allapool a really hard time when I really should have been. Allapool's a lot nicer than Allness. <laughs> 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 don't know if it has a council estate or sells Lamborghini. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. But I think that Atticus Ross thing is really interesting because I don't understand why he would bring him into anything else. Because they've got their own thing. They've, well, won, they've, they, won, they've, they've literally won Oscars. No, they, they, worked, aye, they worked in soundtracks mm-hmm. together. So, so I don't know why. So what, well. What's it got to gain? Because the, the Trent Reznor, which does the soundtrack stuff, where Atticus Ross is not the Trent Reznor that makes Nancy Neal's music. It's just the difference. It's a totally different guy. Musically. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's, you know, <laughs> tax purposes, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Maybe he's trying to avoid um, corporate gains tax or something. I don't fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> never know. But, you know, like I was saying earlier, he's part of the machinery now. Yeah. Like, he used to be this absolute outsider. This was um, on Sony, wasn't it? No. no nothing was part of Interscope Records. Was it Interscope? Mm. Yeah, Interscope, so, I mean, yeah. it is a, it's a major label record, but, you know, he was fighting against it, and then he... Yeah, this he, this this was his reaction to his previous experience when he did Pretty Hate Machine. Yeah. Because he felt like he recorded this album, supposedly, in secret, because mm. they, the label were interfering so much... Yeah, um, on the back of Pretty Hate Machine with the kind of creative process that the only way he could think to get it done the way he wanted it was to auteur it in secret and do it under like fake names and stuff at the time so that they wouldn't claim the rights of it yep. um, and right. yeah and then moved over to Interscope but he's, he's been constantly fighting with record label I mean Trent, Trent Reznor's like history of like disputes is, is pretty interesting and yeah. actually at times really pretty admirable mm-hmm. when we were talking about he's got a yeah. bit of a, he's got a job with Apple now but, but that's it he Last year, he was, I think it was Business Insider or something, you know, it was a big industry magazine put him as number two most powerful executive in music, along with, you know, three other guys that run Apple Music. So he's he got that job. So he's now, like, you know, a very big part of the music industry machine, even if he still, you know, he probably hates it, but, you know. It's it's, it's ironic, though, because Apple, I mean, there was, there was a, it was, it was a Nine Inch Nails app or something like that, yeah. and Apple blocked the update to it because they felt that the downward spiral was too obscene and that led to a, a big dispute um, about it. And he also had things like Vimeo I think pulled the video for Broken, I think it was mm-hmm. they, they pulled that because they felt that was too obscene Broken, uh, that was the video that was pulled from all the well, it's like a broken is like a, a a film. It's not just a, a music video. It's like a kind of like short film with a whole bunch of music over it. But the content of the film, the video was judged to be uh, just a bit too much. Um, but he, he he always had like even on this record was it uh, there was a couple of videos that were deemed was far Peggy, too. Not one of them. I think Piggy was yeah. one that was well close closer was big closer. One. The, the yeah. <laughs> March of the Pigs was the live one. Mm-hmm. He did a like a March of the Pigs video which was like a live session, but closer was like. It got really heavy circulation though. There was just an Absolutely, edited version yeah. that we cut mm. to like I think we cut to a test card or something like that. Yeah. When there was a certain image, but it was like pigs' heads spinning round and things and people I think it was Trent Reznor himself that was that was ball gagged up and mm-hmm. stuff, but there was other stuff as well. There was all kinds of things in there. But that was kinda the aesthetic. It was really important to the aesthetic. The fact he was getting banned from things was really important to the edginess of this album. Yeah. The fact there was so much lore around it that you mentioned that mm-hmm. word when we went to do this in the first place and that's definitely the word. There is, there's so much rumour and... You know, I mean, I remember being a kid, this is back in the early, mid-90s, there were a spate of suicides and 
there was talk about how they were always quoting Nine Inch Nails lyrics, and yeah. so some people started to get really concerned about the effect. This, you know, it's like, well, it was pre-internet, and it was pre-social media. You know, it was it's like Marlon Manson, like Columbine, all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Dylan, Dylan Klebold quoted Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, um, yeah he was he was like a, a big fan of them, and he he, he quoted them in his uh, diary supposedly before Columbine, and um, yeah, so there was a lot there was a lot of chat about that, and obviously there's the elephant in the room of the fact that this album and the Broken EP were recorded in the Sharon Tate household yeah. where mm-hmm. the, the Manson family murders took place and Reznor decided <laughs> for his own reasons. I mean, I suppose... Well, he wanted... He, wa- he wanted. He was interested in how that house was part of sort of American, American folklore, folklore yeah. and, mm-hmm. and everything. And obviously, he's just a bit of a goth as well. So it's like, yeah, if, totally you can, <laughs> if you can just record your album in a, you know, famous serial killer house, then you would probably... But the thing was, he kind of forgot about the human part of it. Yeah, he said he wanted to take part in some of the American lore itself, you know, some of the American sort of uh, pop culture history stuff by mm. being in there. But then I think when he met um, uh, Shanti's sister, really put him on the spot about it. Yeah, he exploited like, my sister's death. Exploit my, yeah. my sister's mm. horrible death, mm-hmm. uh, you know, horrendous death, and, you know, good riddance to Charles Manson dying recently. But Sadly, Roman Polanski is still with us. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and Tre- Reznor did come out publicly and say that he was ashamed of it. And after he moved out of that studio, I believe that house was bulldozed as well. So yeah. yeah. But <laughs> saying he's ashamed of it, he did make copious references to Pig and Piggy, and mm-hmm. after all, which was what was written on the front door of the house. And the chat is that he took the front door of the house when he left the studio. You would, wouldn't you? As well, oh, you, ah, you would. <laughs> ah, you just would. <laughs> Done it myself. <laughs> Can we talk do, about? Do, can I just say as well? Yeah. Just talking about like disputes. You know, you got in a dispute with the American military because apparently this album was being used to torture prisoners in Guantanamo Bay. Was that alongside like Rage the Machine and stuff like that? Yeah. And back. <laughs> and what, Pantera and Slayer. But to be fair, Wales. this is much better torture music. Like, it really is. <laughs> Aye, it, this is like I mean, way like, more grating. Yeah, it's, it's it's far more ominous than Rage Against the Machine. Yes, like, it's mean, not easy. There's yeah. no comparison unless you played it. Unless it's just volume, in which case you could play anything at that volume. But. Yeah, he ended up going to court, I think, with the American military. He also went to court with his manager as well, his ex-manager. Got yeah. about three million out of his ex-manager. So, aye, a guy that was constantly fighting things. But he's a bit an anti-Metallica, though, because for one of the later records, he basically encouraged fans to just start downloading it and torrenting it. That was for a year. It was Year Zero was the one he released himself. I think it was one before that, was it not? Was it was uh, With Teeth? Yeah, yeah. He basically was like, yeah, just just, just steal this record. Yeah. Because that, that, that was the end of inter- the, the thing with Scope. That was the very end of the nothing thing. Yeah. Because after that record was done, Manson also left nothing because he'd basically disbanded the label completely because he was no longer an Interscope. Is Dear Zero the one that's got that really corny like concept album? That's yeah, the, one about, the, like, uh, the whole alternate reality game and stuff like that. An authoritarian yeah. regime takes over yeah. the USA. So, uh, mm-hmm. Doesn't seem so corny now, I suppose. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> Also was muted to be turned into a TV show and stuff like that as well by HBO were interested in buying the rights and stuff. It's really weird. They'd be the ones to do it. Mm. I was just going to say, can we talk about how weird it must have been to be a fan of Snails and, and listen to Pretty Hate Machine and get this next? I wasn't a fan of Pretty Hate Machine at all. Yeah, I but think if, if, if you if like, it was if the other way around, Snails, if, if that's what you liked at the time, if like the band that you were like, 
pretty heavy. She was like nineteen eighty nine. This was nineteen ninety four. So you're waiting five years for the next nineteen sales record, and then you get this. It's like this is not the band. Yeah, but music's changed then. Like nineteen eighty nine to nineteen ninety four, Kurt Cobain's come and gone. You know, like everything's changed. If you were into dark goth electropop in eighty nine, you probably were a fucking miserable nineteen year old by the time it came to you know this album coming out. So I feel like maybe that audience were ready for this. Yeah, I mean, I think Pretty Hate Machine's much more of its time. I actually, in retrospect, don't think it's a terrible album. I mean, it's got, some, it's got some good tracks It's got some it. pretty cool stuff in it. And I think, like... The, the remasters are so good, man. Well, the way they incorporated it in Natural Born Killers was mm. really good as well. And it kind of highlighted some of the parts of it. And it's it's kind of a fun album. It's more, it is more of a kind of, like, the mission slash the cat house slash the kind of, like, yeah. goth floor at the yeah. rock club. But Downward Spiral was... Really misanthropic. I mean, it was a it was another level it's of nihilist. It's pure nihilistic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really, really what? sinister. And mm-hmm. even though there's there are a couple of in fact, commas bangers on it, mm-hmm. sometimes they're so tongue in cheek that it's almost disturbing. I mean, like Piggy and Closer, Closer yeah. and dropping them into the mix with stuff like Reptile and Eraser, Eraser, and and even like Warm Place, mm-hmm. which is really unsettling. The coming as well, which is just like unfolds over like this just. Yeah, it's just crazy, man. So like, that's it's it's pretty fascinating just how much of a departure this was from the album before it. And I think the album before it was of its time, and it was it was up there with like bands like Ministry and stuff. And this had come from like Throbbing Gristle mm-hmm. and uh, Skinny Puppy and all these bands before it. And he was taking stuff from them, but then this came out and seemed to kind of re-establish the sort of standard mm-hmm. and really take things to a kind of another level. And that's partly why it, so many people were taking a Taken a bit back, why it caused so much controversy. Um, I think one of the one of the main sources of controversy is a lot of like evangelical protest against this. Specifically, a lot of it came from Big Man with a Gun, and even though Reznor had supposedly written that, and I mean it seems pretty obvious he wrote it as a satire. But the <laughs> some people, there's a couple of judges in America. Um, Americans are ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, our audience. <laughs> He's also mm. in the States. Uh, I think it was a guy, a judge called Robert Bork. Um, Bork. <laughs> Robert, Robert Bork. Bork? Um, I think Bork. that was the name. Um, Bork and who, who was discussing Big Man with a Gun as, as glorifying gun violence. And they kept him and, and, and a kind of fairly infamous guy called Bob Dole. Kept, <laughs> yeah, like, he kept uh, bunching it in with gangster rap and, and referring to Big Man with a Gun as, as rap and gangster rap. So it sort of started to, to kind of get the attention of people like the PMRC, which was like Tipper yeah, Gore's yeah, of course, yeah. organisation, because they felt it was, you know, advocating gun violence. Which is crazy, because I thought the whole point of America was to advocate gun violence. <laughs> but it uh, seems that when you do that, but you're not a Republican voter, mm-hmm. you, you incur their wrath. Because, I mean, Reznor, for example, has banned Fox Music, mm-hmm. uh, Fox News, from using his music because he, he found out they were using it to I don't know why Fox News were using why would you why would you <laughs> <laughs> he was he's, he's, he's a pretty left wing guy he was super mm-hmm. critical of George Bush he used to po- perform in front of a big uh, banner of George Bush I think he, one of his TV performances was pulled because he refused to not use the, the Bush banner and stuff so he's, he's, he's quite politically spoken but yeah the, the part of the lore around the album stems from that uh, Accumulated controversy, both within and out with mm-hmm. uh, the actual music itself. It's like politicising the records in a way which it was never really intended to be. You know what I mean? Like he's obviously making this massive statement, and then somebody's went actually, 
Like, how much of a fucking humour bypass? Like, how stupid must you fucking be to not see the satire and something? I understand if you can't, under, if, you, if you listen to it and go, oh, that sounds really dark, and those lyrics are really dark, therefore I'm putting two and two together and putting one, two and two together, four, right? But it's like, why would you not then do research? Why would you not then go, know, what people, is this guy all about? People took Brass Eye seriously. Like, I know, like, <laughs> like the did, Daily like, Mail exists. How do these people so, exist? Like, how do they get by in life? <laughs> I, you think a guy called Robert Bork would have a sense of humor? Essential. But I mean, yeah, I, I'm a big man. Yes, I am, and I've got a big gun. And it's the I think Larry's like, I'll make you suck it. I'll make you fuck it. Yeah. And it's it's like, come on, fuck man. <laughs> it's like if this is a pro gun campaign, it's not going to get too far. I mean, mm-hmm. it, really, it's not. Exactly laying its case out in the strongest possible terms. The NRA, like, going, by the way, Trent, that's this guy, he fucking knows our shit. I don't think they were. By the, by the way, talking about lore, the the start of that track, do you know you know the noise at the start of Big Man with a Gun? What is it? It's that kind of weird... Yeah, yeah. Do you know what that is? What? Oh, it's horrendous. I don't even know what... I don't know if this... Makes our podcast X rated. We're already explicit on iTunes as well. Oh, you guys are big Motley Crue fans. We've already established that. <laughs> yeah, clearly. Uh, no, no, we've not established it. It'll be established soon. <laughs> Tommy Lee from Motley Crue invited himself into the Nine Inch Nails studio or, or wherever part of the studio they were working in when it, he just introduced himself and brought in two young women who I believe were porn actresses mm-hmm. one of whom had a particular set of skills <laughs> which involved projecting bodily fluids upon arousal um, and Tommy Lee apparently layered down on a I mean I think Tommy Lee's a fucking knob end I can't stand the guy I have no time for Motley Crue at all <laughs> he, he, he took himself in there and he put her on a piano and then was like hey guys set up a microphone watch this and then that is the sample that is on the the start of that song although Trent Reznor kind of totally speed worked it and yeah. stuff by yeah, yeah. As you would. <laughs> there you go. Art. Just that's it's art, just art, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, how the album's happens. worse off for Tommy Lee having been near it. Is <laughs> <laughs> he or she credited on the record? Absolutely not. So, so, <laughs> fuck, someone is credited on it, though, but I can't remember what the name is. It's pretty sort of tongue in cheek or tongue in something. <laughs> <laughs> If you like what you hear and you want to support this small, independent podcast and keep Chris off the streets, I mean, he's so miserable right now, we need to keep him happy, uh, then you can donate. Donate whatever you want, You can, as long as it's money. <laughs> Just go to www.unsungpod.net slash donate and uh, just send us anything that you can afford. But this again, this, it comes back to the whole thing. It's a lore. I don't even think I don't even think Trent Reznor knew that he was going to be creating such a condition for his record to be made in, where it would become, you know, like so. It's like almost like Marlon Manson levels of lore. Like when, like when he did Antichrist Superstar, like they did like all the coke. Yeah. And then like it was just like bags and pounds and pounds of it like in the room. And then when they went to mechanical animals, they had to stop doing it because they were completely unable to function. You know, and that's just like a. You can very much see he's maybe coming from the same area. It's like the the Trent Reznor thing. It's like, oh, there must be, there must be like a, a mystique around this album, like a myth almost, like creating like a modern myth. Yeah. Around it, you know. 
I don't. Do you, th- do you think Trent Reznor even created that like consciously? When he was, I think he was always a, he was although he was a sort of dark, gloomy producer. He he also he did like the limelight. I think he was a bit of a. He's always had a sort of an ego. He's had a knack for it as well. Yeah. I mean, I think all those those guys in that crew had a knack for it. I mean, even with the Marilyn Manson stuff, Trent Reznor's a part of a lot of those stories, in like Marilyn Manson's you know infamous book. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, I, th- I think the. They kind of knew what they were doing. I mean, there was that way, way back at the start of Nine Inch Nails, they did a video for, I think, Seven a Pretty Hate Machine. And they did a video of... It was like a fake video of, like, someone getting pushed off a roof. Mm. And there was, like, a footage of, like, a guy lying on the ground, kind of sprawled on the ground with blood creeping from his head. It, it basically, it was on VHS, and then it, it turned up somewhere, and the FBI supposedly thought it was a genuine snuff film. So right from way, way back, Mm-hmm. Like Nine Inch Nails were a band that probably clicked. Like, wow, man, controversy and lore and like hush hush word of mouth. Little kids getting excited because something is genuinely taboo. That that really works. <laughs> Again, it works with the music stylistically, but it yeah. also really works in terms of the sales. Yeah. Um. And I think they're they're not naive, man. They've known that. And I actually think he's he's moved away from that. He totally has. Yeah. yeah. He's he's he started to rely a little bit more on his actual chops. And to be honest, I don't think it's as interesting <laughs> anymore. But there you go. I mean, he does still make some very interesting stuff. As I would see it, he would move into like a Prince phase of being like very anti-label and very anti-like fans have control. And it's all about like getting away from like, getting more autonomy from the the big machine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Now, now he's back part of the machine. That's but a, I think that's a really relevant example on a number of levels. I think like Trent Reznor's a huge fan of Prince. Mm-hmm. Both as an auteur and uh, you can hear, you can tell character, but you can really hear not it musically. musically as well. You can hear it in this album, like Peggy and so? closer. And oh, definitely, man. There's like, there's so many bits through this album that if you listen for even beat wise, if you listen to kind of the attitude of Prince and the, the innuendo of Prince, and I mean, closer is, you know, South Park did like Mecha Streisand. It's like, <laughs> that is like industrial Prince, Mecha song, Prince. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So it's like the, there are huge layers of Prince. I think all the way through. I think it's a song Ruiner. As well, I th- I'm pretty sure it's got like a, a pretty heavy. The Prince of Darkness, see? Eh? <laughs> 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 But you're right. Like, the, the, I mean, even Trent Reznor's like, I'll bring those kind of similar princes in the terms of they're both piano players. You know what I mean? And they kind of mm. grew to be like pianists. Yeah, we can see it. We can see the pianists. <laughs> I'm just trying to get away from you know the Tommy Lee talk. <laughs> uh, but like, and like getting involved and playing every other instrument and kind of being completely in charge of your own destiny. And he very much moved towards that before after Prince did. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's kind of nice sense. to know that there is somebody out there who's had the success. And the state of mind to take on the industry at certain points and win at certain points is pretty cool, you know. Like, I, I don't have a massive problem with Reznor. I think he, he certainly was a bit of a cheese ball at points, but at the same time, he's a talented guy. He contributed in a big way, well, a massive way. I seen the music. As I say, there was loads of stuff before him. There was the Coil, Throbbing Gristle, all that kind of stuff. But he took it to another level. I think. I mean, this album sold a lot. This album sold to about. What, how many million? Two, two and a half million or I something? Definitely like platinum twice, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's. I think this is close as well, given the nature of this podcast, when you're trying to elevate slightly underrated music. This is probably as close as we can get to the cusp of actually was just not that underrated. But it is very fringe. 
I think it, it sneaks in under the, the door in that sense that this is a very fringe album, very controversial at times and very out there. It just was also very, very good and really well done and landed at the right moment. And I think even just the band supported it amazingly. Like, they're touring... Their live shows were incredible. Yeah, I mean, like you were on the road for a long fucking time with this record. Like, yeah, for and a long you know time. They, they supported Guns and Woozies mm-hmm. as well. Like they absolutely sank. I think Reznor describes that as being a really formative experience about how badly they went down for a Guns and Roses audience, and their their shows became like notoriously confrontational, like fighting on stage, hitting each other with instruments on stage, you ended up bloodied and concussions and he always did this thing where he'd cover himself in flour mm-hmm. and so it, like, the flour would mix with mud there's a famous Woodstock 94 yeah. performance and stuff I mean it was really intense and yeah. it just was a, a very well structured business <laughs> and you know as, as artistic as it was it's, it's also it just everything came together to really elevate it to that level and the fact that so many people subsequently Marilyn Manson in particular definitely clearly referenced it and mm. drew a new audience back towards it because um, people like Marilyn Manson such as yourself mm. there was a very very good chance they were going to go back and really like this and tracks like Heresy and stuff are an obvious mm-hmm. thing for you to like if you're if if you like that. Manson's very much like the accessible version of like that industrial rock sound, like early Miller Manson stuff. Yeah, he's like a pop. You, you can see, yeah, yeah uh-huh. he's a pop cartoony yeah. version of it. Absolutely, and that's that worked for the label as well for nothing. Like it was basically just those two that was spinning it, spinning yeah. the wheels for it the whole thing, right up until the end. What I find really interesting about Nails now though is like. I know obviously we're talking about how it's been how it's a really popular record and how Chris you were saying that it's getting from the cusp but I don't think a lot of people talk about anything else anymore and talk about, don't talk about this record anymore despite the fact it's been you know I mean because they're so ubiquitous you, they're like kind of always been there mm-hmm. and you just there's Nine Inch Nails but I think so it's, it's important to draw attention to it like yeah. to draw attention to how yeah. oppressive and intense <coughs> this record really is I really yeah. do think there's a, a generation of producers that have, that, that have come up in Nine Inch Nails and stuff like Apex Twin and stuff would be some of their biggest influences, or if not their biggest influences on their current work, certainly something that made them enthused about the process of producing and what you could do if you were in a studio and unleashed with some relatively interesting new equipment and started just chopping things together and breaking rules and not just doing guitar, bass, drums and really experimenting with Track by track, the album, there are so many different ideas on, on, the, on the individual tracks themselves. I mean, his his thinking power must have been scattered, but it certainly it came together really, really well. I don't. Even, I it's hard to it's hard to guess as well how much of this was just sheer good luck, mm-hmm. the way it came together, and how much of it really was an artistic vision, because he was, by and large, a mess. Yeah, a riot. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, the, the the guy was a drug addict, mm-hmm. he, he, close to death on at least one occasion. Have to give him the benefit of the doubt in that. I mean, to be fair, since then, he followed it up with The Fragile, which is a pretty strong album, mm-hmm. way over long. I mean, I think if The Fragile had been one disc, it would have been a contender for something. There's just too much on it. Yeah, there's more current resonance on The Fragile than there is anything else. Like, yeah. the, the guy that makes soundtracks, like, that's that record. And then I think he gets increasingly further away mm-hmm. as he goes on in his career. And I mean, we're there's the Ghost series, like one yeah. to five, which apparently is really, really interesting. It's kind of ambient, ambient, instrumental, yeah. Yeah. the slip stuff as well. The slip, yeah. yeah, it's got a couple of bangers on it as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's he's done things like he's done a lot of soundtrack stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, most notably, um, 
uh, social network, social network which is fucking the big, cracking the big man. breakthrough it's one, really yeah, good yeah. Yeah. Um, but he, he also <laughs> what? did the soundtrack to Quake Quake the game that's, uh, oh, that's yeah that was at the same time as roughly the same time as this was it not uh, yeah, yeah it was like maybe it was 96 or 97 yeah. I think but that was like one of the first times I heard Nine Inch Nails mm. I got Quake on my old Mac he's it's been in Rick and Morty as well has he and he did the Raid 2 did Twin Peaks I think it's stuff on Westworld. I mean, this is all just like being featured mm-hmm. in the shows, but the, the music's everywhere, man. Yeah. It's like it's really, really adaptable to that kind of stuff. Um, and he produced soundtracks as well, which you know, for example, Natural Born Killers being one of them. Also, the first, the first, um, or one of the first places people encountered them. We've actually used this reference before. Was the Crow soundtrack mm-hmm. when he, he did a, a Joy Division cover? Yeah, uh-huh. really pretty good cover of Joy Division and that and that. Soundtrack, you know, weirdly, I'd, I have a feeling that that soundtrack might one time come up in this, and we've never considered doing a soundtrack. Do you know a, a soundtrack album that it's got kind of lost in the sands of time, but it was uh, Spawn, the movie. Do yeah. you remember that? Yeah, John Leguizamo as the fat weird guy. Oh, I mean, the movie was absolutely terrible, but the soundtrack <laughs> album they got like a dance producer and a, a rock band to team up. And yeah, but so that was that was done before in Judgment Night as well. Yeah, no, but the, yeah. it wasn't like it wasn't like it that was, was a rap. like rap. Yeah, rap. So this had like uh, a Thai teenage riot and Slayer oh, did a track. Crystal Method, Crystal did, Method, yeah, and right, Corn. I think uh, Marilyn Manson was on it uh, w- with the sneaker, sneaker pimps. pimps. Yeah, but basically the whole album just sounded like a Nine Inch Nails album, <laughs> even though Trent Reznor wasn't involved. It was that sort of like mid nineties alternative. Oh, this is the yeah, sound we need to go for. So like he, he sort of kind of shaped that, or this album did. I yeah, think. it's very true. It's very true. Yeah, See, it's before we move on, can I just make one reference to the production? And you, I don't know, Chris. Do you listen to Public Enemy a lot? Have you listened to a lot of Public Enemy? I've listened to Public Enemy. I don't the actively squad listen to production much style Enemy. on their records as pure just Like I think a lot of Trent Reznor's production style comes from that loud and brash and stampily and just like getting punched in the face. Yeah, I think yeah, a I lot of that, that comes from. And whenever I hear a Trent Reznor song, I know because it sounds like it just sounds like eighties hip hop, like production yeah. side yeah, still, yeah. you know. Even to this day, it's the exact same. Aye. It has like getting hit by a brick wall, you know, and it's brilliant. Yeah, there's a. I mean, he did lay claim to a lot of really distinctive production styles as well. Um, his vocal style is really like really identifiable. I think they call it terraced dynamics. I think is one of the names for it. But that kind of like jumping between the kind of soft and the very tightly limited but super saturated screams mm-hmm. that he does you know because he's got that sort of like voice breaks yeah. it's very fuzzy it's mm-hmm. <sighs> and they put distortion on thing almost like yeah, yeah. a lot of gain mm-hmm. in his vocals and stuff yeah he was there's some really strong flavours that came out of Nine Inch Nails that have worked for other people shall we say <laughs> since then I think a lot of the ways, though, as much as we we spoke about this before, and it's worth bearing mentioning again, is like all of us could really say that we really like Nine Snails, but we're probably not Nine Snails fans. Every single idea he's ever had on this record. And the young me was a Nine Snails fan, and the young me is still, to some extent, part of me. So I don't think you stop being it. I think you just maybe just leave it behind a wee bit. And and that's I'm maybe being unfair there because some of the, some of his newer stuff has sounded good. I've just never taken the time to reinvestigate it in depth. I did listen to some of it for this and as I say it was like, this is actually it's a lot more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. Shall we put it that way? It's definitely a bit a ranger of music. Yeah. Well I mean I was saying earlier 
I, I was listening to an Adam Kurt. I was watching an Adam Curtis mm-hmm. documentary, and he used he uses music brilliantly. You know, he loves stuff like Burial, Aphex Twin, things like that. And there was a bit. I think it was on Bitter Lake, and it was just a massively brooding bit of music. I was like, "Fuck, that sounds amazing!" And I checked it out, and it was Nine Inch Nails. Uh, you know, off the slip. I think it was you know much later stuff. And so he's still doing stuff that's you know really progressive and you know pushing boundaries because I I had no, I thought it was like some young guy that was just doing something really cool yeah it's fucking Uncle Trent over there <laughs> he's I, um he's a bit of a whiz when it comes to like sampling absolutely kind of kitsch stuff as well I saw seen the Bomb Squad they reference <coughs> that whole thing like the when he does pick a sample he, he chops it and screws it so much that it becomes unrecognisable but it's still got the same yeah like so high gain you know all that kind of stuff yeah even if it's not just a, a woman Lying on a pool table, yeah, <laughs> um, letting rip. I think like the one of the most famous ones is the the kick drum in Closer, which is obviously so so totally like culturally yeah. <laughs> ubiquitous. To use that word again. Um, that was taken from an Iggy Pop song. I think it's called Nightclubbing. Um, and it's when you hear that, you're like, wow, it's that weird sense of familiarity. Um, but he also he kind of chucked in bits and bobs from films. There's what's the George Lucas film THX one one three. His first film. His yeah. first film, mm-hmm. the one about uh, Robert Duvall. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's like androids and stuff. There's, I think that's how um, Mr. Self Destruct sample opens. The guy getting a. Is that what that is? Gets a get the guy getting a doing. I didn't know that. I was always I was really <laughs> unsettling when you hear it. I was like, what the fuck is that? Yeah, it's it's, it's a part in that film where the. I don't know if it's Duval's character, but one of the one of the characters getting beaten up by these kind of robot-faced sort of police cadet people. I think there's a couple of other like really niche kind of old sci-fi films in there as well. So he had a bit of a knack for that stuff too. The artwork. See again, being from Glasgow, um, we. Uh, oh yeah, I know this. I know this. Yeah, thing. We, yeah. The, there was uh-huh. a. I don't know how to pronounce it. Committer or Comitern. I'm not sure, but there was an exhibition at Glasgow School of Art of the original canvases that were used for this uh, for this uh, album uh, by an artist called Russell Mills. Yeah, and the, I think the one that was used for the cover was called. It's either Wound or Wound. Obviously, mm. could well be either or, or mm. both, depending on how awkward he was feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mills described it as apparently contradictory imagery of pain and healing. Um, and he, he used, you know, like wax, uh, bandages, wire, blood. Uh, it was, it was, <laughs> I don't know if he had feces on it, but he had like, like all kinds of like acrylic and like dead insects, rusted metal. And I think each one was about two feet square. And the artwork for this was hugely distinctive. Um, like Reznor had this art, art director, a guy called Gary Talpas, who'd worked on various releases for him. This, I think, was the best thing that Talpas arranged for him because the Mills artwork on it's brilliant. And they, it was echoed when they did Further Down the Spiral, the remix album. Mm-hmm. I actually remember at high school, I got a, it was my fifth year assignment, was to, you know, 
pick a theme and my theme was to redesign the cover for Nine Inch Nails Downward Spiral and was just you know experiment with ropes and wires and stuff so like, even as a kid I was really attracted to how unsettling and interesting and tactile and sort of well I remember <coughs> being in Our Price in Inverness <laughs> in the Eastgate <laughs> Centre and like fine establishment always been drawn at the Nine Inch Nails you know records and looking at Downward Spiral and further down the spiral there was just something that caught my eye even as a you know talk about iconic <coughs> art sometimes on this on this and I think even Trent knows it because he used pretty much the exact same like the same artist for Hesitation Marks his last record and it's the artwork is mm. very very similar because I think he felt it was in the same level as Downward Spiral it's probably not to be honest mm-hmm. really good record though sounds nothing like it but I think even he knows like how iconic and how important and influential like the art for that record has been yeah you know so I, mean, I think that's a good point is there any, any that stand out in this album for you I mean I think it's a consistently track strong album I mean I would say the first half <clears throat> is a bit more cut into songs and more distinguishable mm. and the second half was much more of a it's piece a sweet, a yeah. sweet mm-hmm. yeah it's like after Big Man With A Gun mm. or arguably before it but it descends into like a real sort of becomes a, a bit of a ride that you can't get off yeah there, um, there's a lot of segueing and there's a lot of like really quite sinister stuff yeah you're going down the spiral at that point, I think that's probably what we would say. It's like you're actually now in the descent of the Yeah, part the, the, you know the I mean? narrative like, of the guy uh-huh. who's slowly unfurling, which yeah. is the character that the mm-hmm. album's meant to depict. I mean, yeah. for for me, I Do Not Want This was as, as always a standout for me. And The Becoming as well, with with the exception of things like March of the Pigs and Closer, which I also totally dig. But those two songs in particular, The Becoming just, it feels like it's like enveloping me, you know? I yeah. feel like I'm getting like fucking like taken down and it's not nice but it's also very nice that makes sense yeah that was always a track I went by too really like the way it kicked off with Mr. Self-Destruct there's just something about it that seems a really it's logical like, follow on for the Broken EP as well That it yeah, seems like a really yeah, yeah. good continuation because it's very like mm-hmm. it's very kind of metallic guitar and really sort of a drum machine that guy's name but it was Adrian Bellew the guy from King Crimson and he apparently just came in and made the guitar sounds that's all he did he absolutely killed it in this record they did see with the drums as well though they got the it's a Stephen Perkins a James Addiction and Chris Verena I think it was a guy who was in a band called Tweaker and he did loads of stuff in NH Nails and he worked Marlon Manson as well yeah and they played like chunks of drums and Reznor just chopped them up and then rearranged them I think Reznor also by the way, played drums at the very end of Piggy there's like an outro and it's the only bit in the album where he actually plays the drums I actually didn't know he could play drums I don't know he could play drums I, I don't think he necessarily thinks he can <laughs> play drums maybe he does but um He really was Prince. He could play drums. Yeah. <laughs> but um, no, on the, on the outro of that song, I think it's him playing. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, the guy, Adrian Bellew, absolutely killed it in this album. And some of the guitar stuff is just so good, and then so, so completely. I mean, the production helps, but it's so in your face and so aggressive, and distinctive. I read that um, apparently he was getting a bit of, like kind of. He always felt as though he was limited in guitar, and it wasn't until he seen Bellew's playing on the record he was like, "I can actually do that. Yeah. I, I can play guitar." 
and that I must have been quite liberating because the guitar is really unconventional but yeah. fantastic um, and obviously I think it's not I wouldn't say it's one of my highlight songs but the, the song that we have to mention I think before we wrap up is Hurt mm-hmm. because I mean it became possibly the defining song of the album years later when Cash covered it and then Trent Reznor made that comment about how it felt like watching someone sleep with his ex-girlfriend because <laughs> it wasn't his song anymore Is a, an astonishing cover mm-hmm. of what was already a pretty cool song, but it yeah. was one of those songs that was a bit OTT, it was a wee bit super gothy at mm-hmm. the time. The way Tresnor, the way Michael Trent Reznor, <laughs> even a name like Michael Trent Reznor, you know, you're going to be famous when you don't have to change your name. Um, but when even the way he did it was just a little bit hammy, I think. And then Johnny Cash's version of it is just like. He gets it. He gets the feeling of the record more than Trent Reznor does in that song. I think, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think he's just got years and years and years and years of more like life that has just <laughs> yeah. been channeled into mm-hmm. that voice and that delivery. I think Reznor was still a younger guy and was trying to seem more intense than he maybe mm. <laughs> was. All drug, drug addictions and perversions aside, you know, I think Cash was effortlessly full of experience and all the the years of wisdom and dismay that go along with it and I think that really shows in that song and I mean, Reznor recognises that when he says that it's like that guy's delivery is way more sincere mm-hmm. but it took him to write it and it is a it is a great bit of music it is a really great bit of music and it's let's be honest it's a great finish to a classic album yeah so I guess there's no there's no argument there's no dissent yeah I'm on the fence <laughs> <laughs> I mean yeah it's quite clearly the defining Nine Inch Nails record there's got to be a better Nine Inch there's got to I be think a Nine Inch Nails debatably one of the it's one of the defining industrial rock records and it's one of the defining rock records in the 90s even magazines at the time said that and as I say it's as close as I think we'll get to an album that's like probably too big to qualify for what we're doing but because it's so fringe I think it still is eligible if I can just temper it I would have to say that Sam 69 by Ministry is a better music record than this. The only reason I said one of the best is because that is pretty pretty much up there as well. Yeah, yeah but... We'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll definitely <laughs> get to that. Um, I guess we decide then that this is record's definitely going in and you should, you should definitely go vote. So go to our Facebook page and vote on it and have a good time. Just remember that intro <laughs> next time you hear it. I can never, unfor- I can never unhear that now. Go to our Facebook page, vote, uh, go give us a rating and review on iTunes, and you can follow us on Facebook or whatever, Twitter, Unsung Pod. That's that's where you've got to go. So, I guess, since we've decided that any snails is going to go in, what is the next record we're going to do? Uh, I believe it's Third by Portishead. Third? Not third. Not three. Third. third. No, it's Third. It is Third. It's Third. It's third. Yep. My yep. Google Home couldn't find it. I said, play Third by Portishead, and it was like, it doesn't exist. What's do you Google have Google Home? Home? What? Yeah. Is that like Amazon Alexa? Like speak to the house. Thing? I have two. I've also got lights, which which I can tell them to turn on and off. I am the man from the future. Did you try to pronounce it in different ways? I did. Third. 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 <laughs> Google Home, please find Third. Third. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> Where it is Third? Third by Portishead is the next record, so I'm sure that'll be a stimulating conversation. A cheery one. Yeah. No doubt. <laughs> Um, gentlemen, 
This has been good fun. Thanks. Thank you. That was, that was an enthusiastic one. <laughs>